0: Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today I am really excited to bring in a guest from another favorite sci-fi saga, the Stargate series, onto this show. I spent a lot of time looking at things like Star Trek and MST3K and comic books. I have a wide variety of interests, and I'm sure you do too. So today I want to welcome Joseph Malozzi from the Stargate series. Let's go. Joining us today is Joseph Malozzi. How are you doing today? Good, sir. Excellent. How are you? I am doing fantastic. Uh, You have a writing resume as long as my arm, but my audience is mostly going to know you from the Stargate series, which I am a giant fan of that, personally. Um, I've watched pretty much everything I can think of, and I really would like to just bend your ear on what it took to create such a fantastic universe. Um, sure. I mean, but in all
1: fairness, uh, my then writing partner and I, Paul Molly, joined the Stargate franchise for SG-1's uh, fourth season. So, um, although I did help craft the series after landing on, on, on the franchise, uh, it was really Brad Wright and uh, Jonathan Glasner, who co-created SG-1, and then afterwards, uh, Brad Wright again with Robert C. Cooper, who
0: co-created Atlantis and then Universe. Sure. I'm, I'm a huge Atlantis fan, which is why I might have given you a little earlier credit than that was probably due. But <laughs> um, yeah, Atlantis, I really got a, a, my hooks into that. I thought it really expanded the universe in a way that was already pretty big mm-hmm. and gave it this the otherworldly aspect that you didn't really get with SG-1 proper since SG-1 was based on Earth.
1: Yeah, I'm always, you know, intrigued by uh, Stargate fans and their biases, whether it's SG-1, they go old school or the kind of like the kind of the the kind of the dark grittiness of the universe or, you know, sometimes uh, Atlantis, which I, I thought more than either of the other two shows. I mean, certainly universe, but more than SG-1 had
0: kind of that sense of humor uh, about it. Agreed. Um, I'm going to confess something that I, I kept quiet for a while. When Stargate first launched, SG-1 hit its first season. i resisted watching it for a very long time because I was a huge fan of the original movie. And I, to me, that was one of those movies that you just can't touch that. That's so awesome. How can you make a show out of that? It took people twisting my arm to get me to actually watch it. I think the show was already at season seven by then. So, I mean, it was, you were already on, but it took me like half a season to be like, okay, I get where this is going. And then once I got into the, the, the meat of it, then I realized this show is, very, very good. And I was a sucker to not watch it. So you started from the beginning? I did start from, from and the breaking, beginning, yeah. Because yeah.
1: mm-hmm.
0: I'll uh, be honest with you. I
1: uh, My only experience with SG-1 prior to um, kind of circling a staffing position was with an episode, a season one episode, um, I, I don't recall the name, but it was like the worst episode. Uh, arguably the worst episode Stargate had ever uh, produced. Um, so with Carter who ends up uh, or oh, Emancipation, that that was it. Okay, season one Emancipation, um, and it was just such a terrible episode. I was like, I, you know, this show. And then when my agent was like, well, we're looking, they're looking for writers. I, I was, I said honestly, I don't think I can write for this show. And he's like, well, they, they sent over scripts. And then I ended up reading the scripts and the scripts are actually very good. So that episode was an aberration. Uh, and then, you know, of course I ended up watching, playing catch up and watching and landing on the show. So, um, you know, it's interesting how first time fans come to the show, what, what is kind of their uh, entry point. And, uh, you know, it's always heartening to hear from people who actually watch it from the very beginning.
0: Yeah, and I've heard that from fans of almost every show that I follow is that you will have the people who come in and they try to give a show a chance, and by some weird twist of faith, they always find the <laughs> worst episode, yeah. and they that turns them off. And like I said, it's my fault too, because like I said, I just didn't want to watch it because I like the movie so much. Yeah, yeah. And, and I have to wonder Stargate SG1 was like not the first but was one of the first shows where you couldn't just bounce around episode to episode. It benefited you to start from episode Mm -hmm. one, weak as it might've been, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and just build with it. Yeah,
1: I mean, that's one of the nice things I liked about working on the Stargate franchise, especially SG-1 and Atlantis, is that you have that episodic element. So you, you you could tune in and get a story with a beginning, middle, and end, and yet they would always add to either the mythology or or an ongoing story or character arc that
0: um, you know would pay off somewhere down the line. And I'm just trying to think of shows that did that. I mean, DS9 and Babylon 5 mm-hmm. had done it a few years earlier. But was there a sense writing at that time that you, you suddenly have more freedom to build those worlds that you didn't have earlier?
1: Not really. To be honest with you, uh, as I said, my, uh, Paul and I landed on, on the franchise at the beginning of season four, and we pitched, we we, we landed this uh, staffing position on the strength of a, um, a script we wrote, Scorched Earth, which which was one of the, for, I think our, our second episode produced. Uh, but you, if you look at all the scripts that we wrote during the show's fourth season, they were all standalone, and they really had nothing, they weren't really mytholic, mythologically connected. I remember at the end of the fourth season, when we heard about there would be a fifth season, Paul and I were kind of at a loss. We were like, you know, I don't know how we can keep coming up with ideas. Uh, And we found that actually it was actually easier to go back into the past and kind of mine what had come before. Uh, And and so as sort of the the show progressed, we were able to tell standalone stories, but we were also able to tell stories that kind of harken back to stories we had told. in the past. So really as time went on and we built that mythology, we built those, that backstory,
0: uh, the stories actually became easier. That's interesting. Cause I mean, I've played my hand at writing but I've always found that it, it sometimes feels more difficult that some writers talk about getting boxed in with previous stories and it sounds like that was the exact opposite effect for you.
1: Yeah, I, you know, to be honest with you the, the, the times we did get boxed in would be when we would pitch something and it would be too similar to something, either uh, Stargate had done before or Star Trek had done. So, you know, those were kind of really the only limits. And as I said, coming up with those standalone one-offs, like I remember um, uh, I I did uh, uh, a a script for episode seven, I think it was called uh, Revisions. The team goes off world, they encounter this society, uh, and we it, it just created, crafted kind of a really interesting sci-fi conceit. And at the end of the, the episode, SG-1 ba- went back home. And I remember our visual effects supervisor saying, you know, I really like this episode because it's, it's it's really just kind of a pure sci-fi story with no real roots to anything that had come before. And it was always kind of fun to be able to tell those stories. And one of the great things about SG-1 in particular was that um, in terms of tone, you could tell any one of a you know, number of different stories. You could tell like a, a heartfelt story. You can tell a humorous story. I mean, you know, we're a window of opportunity. You can do a more action driven story. We can do, you know, sometimes we even delve into horror as well. So um, really it, it, you know, just the, the franchise as a whole, just
0: allowed us to play in a very large creative sandbox. I can definitely see that, and i that was probably, as a guy who was coming at it, watching years of Star Trek, all the Star Wars movies you could get his hands on. That's probably why I ended up liking Stargate so much, is that there was that broader range of stories that you just didn't get from those other universes. Like, I, you could, as somebody who hasn't really gotten into it, would say, well, they're just, it's Star Trek, but they're just using gates instead of ships. That's mm-hmm. thats not really accurate.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean,
0: you on a very surface level, it might be, but you, you're talking about, it's almost a fictional version of a variety show because like, I, I remember the episodes where they went pure humor, just absolute silliness, which you yep. didn't see mm-hmm. hardly anywhere else. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, that that was, I think also a product of having Richard Dean Anderson as a, as our lead, and he definitely leaned towards the humor and enjoyed the humor, and then Brad and Robert o- always like to infuse a bit of humor, even into just kind of those... Darker uh, scripts and it's one thing I learned over the course of working uh, on Stargate is the fact that humor goes such a long way towards allowing audiences to connect With characters. It's almost kind of a shorthand. You're automatically kind of drawn to the funny uh, individual. So why I think Rodney McKay was so hugely popular um, on, on, on Atlantis. I mean, when he was introduced Granted, he was kind of a jerk. In fact, and he was still kind of a jerk on Atlantis but you we kind of humanized him and he was kind of you know he had that 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 sense of humor and and the audiences responded to him
0: it, it's there's it a realism to it and i think that's that's a good way to look at it, is that you're you're able to see how you personally would react in that situation because mm-hmm. it probably you wouldn't be a captain kirk or a luke skywalker you would be the rodney mckay just trying to avoid getting shot and and trying to scrape up the rock you were looking for right right so when you're working with somebody like a Richard Dean Anderson who has that kind of stage presence and has the, the, uh, comedic timing, what's it like to incorporate that into the writing? Can you get yourself in his headspace and and write his lines very easily, or does it take a minute to? You know, it with time, it become it become actually very easy. Um,
1: just because the Jack character is almost like an everyman or every person. Uh And you know, like you said, you imagine yourself in in his shoes, and and how would you react in a best case scenario? And uh, you know, I think humor always came easier to to the writing staff in generals, and and so we, you know, I think we tended to gravitate towards those characters that were humorous, like an
0: O'Neill or like uh, a Rodney McKay. I. My favorite line it's not a line by Jack. It's a line about Jack. um and I'm sorry I'm not going to get the exact words right, but somebody said you're you're smart, but it's to your you think it's to your benefit to not let people know that. And that mm-hmm. is such the key to that character. Once you get your head around that, you realize he's not the Homer Simpson guy he's trying to be like he is smart, but he's a tactical dumbness that that line actually was. You know,
1: I think back to it, a, almost a kind of response to, to, to fandom who, um, you know, as kind of SG-1 uh, went on, we kind of leaned more on, on the humor because that's what Rick really responded to and he really liked the humor and, and, you know, occasionally he would ad-lib as well. And there was a little bit of a blowback from a certain section of fandom that started to refer to him as dumb Jack. And the fact that, oh, you know, o- O'Neill is dumb now. And, and we certainly didn't see it that way. So that line was a way of sort of letting everyone know exactly where the character stood. And just because he responds this way doesn't necessarily
0: mean, you know, he's, you know, you know clueless. Mm-hmm. Right, and when, uh, when Jack is, when he's getting some heat from letting Daniel Jackson take too much leeway, he gets asked, is he always like this? And he's like, yeah, but he's usually right about this. But he he is still the guy who just wants to get stuff done, which yeah, is yeah. a very military mindset. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think and, that that's needs to be worked in is that, you know, you're dealing with people who are the, the military mindset is a very specific mindset. So.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I look back at my time on, 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 SG uh, SU one in particular and what set SU one apart was the fact that we had uh Military advisors who would read the scripts and vet the scripts and kind of weigh in with thoughts on you know everything from from um, you know uniforms to uh, you know a proper way to salute indoors uh, things like that. So and and you know I, I, we would always receive fan mail, but it was always really interesting to get the fan mail from let's say troops who were stationed overseas who still managed to
0: catch the show, wherever they were. Uh, Is there anything in particular that stands out from that time, a certain, as I was saying, a certain type of uh, fan or a certain particular letter?
1: Um, No, just kind of in general, the fact that uh, the show had so much support uh, amongst the armed forces, I mean, just, you know, fandom in general, but um, the fact that it was specifically such a beloved show by the armed forces always kind of stood out. In, in my mind, because it's,
0: it's something that, that I've never experienced before for any other show. Sure. And I, again, I'm not, I, I don't make shows myself, but from my understanding, it's very difficult to get the armed forces to sign off on a show they would, the way they did with SG-1. They, the one little thing in the script that they don't like, they just don't want to touch it. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. But, but, you know, I think we earned their trust over time so much so that, um, I mean, we've had two uh 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 general's a uh, guest
0: guest star on, on on the show have you ever actually been in shy the cyan cheyenne, cheyenne mountain complex i have not uh although i heard a story from martin wood
1: who's our longtime stargate director who actually went there to shoot some of the establishers i mean in the first few seasons you have those establishers where you cut outside cheyenne mountain and then roll into the to the show proper and we those were getting kind of also we went there to uh shoot some uh, some uh, kind of b-roll and he actually got to go inside um, Cheyenne Mountain apparently they have a a he he was shown a room that was marked uh, I think something like you know Stargate Command do not enter uh, it was a bloke room closet as it turned out but uh, so basically everyone uh, there apparently watched the show as well which is great.
0: Well, you would think so. I mean, when something is theoretically shot on location, even if it's really not, you're right. that personally. You get a little bit of an investment, it. Yeah. In. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I... <laughs> do you happen to be a fan of the movie UHF? I I have never seen UHF. I know it's, that's it's a weird, it's a weird owl. It's a weird owl, right? I, I, yes. Yeah, it's just a side comment. Um, it was filmed about two hours from where I'm sitting right now. Yeah. And I have just made a point to go around and find all the locations just because it seemed like a fun thing to do. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's just because, it, I mean, I love the movie, but even if I didn't, the fact that I know it was made right here just perks my interest. Yeah. So, granted, we're in this weird world right now where we can't do the things like go to conventions. and But when you do go to those conventions, what's been your response even years now after the Stargate franchises hit a slump well uh i'll
1: be honest with you i rarely go to conventions um the writers are rarely invited uh usually they the, the, the convention organizers will will are more interested in uh in obviously actors but uh, not just regulars but let's say the guy who played Jaffon number two will get an invitation before brad wright who co-created the show which is kind of crazy uh the few times i do go to conventions there are Something like San Diego Comic Con or maybe the local cons, um, just really more to uh, track down some supervillain statues because I'm a big fan of the supervillain statues. Uh, and I will occasionally run into fans still who, you know, cosplay as uh, as uh, as Stargate characters. In fact, I I think uh, two years ago, which is the like the last convention I went to, I ran into a woman who was um, cosplaying as Elizabeth Weir, which is kind of bizarre, but uh Good for her, yeah. Yeah. Tactics, so it's, it's always heartening. And, and really, I mean, I try to keep maintain a, uh, a fairly healthy online presence. And I'm aware of how, uh, you know, how, how much the fans still support the franchise. That there are still a ton of Stargate fans out
0: there who are eager to see a new series. Your Twitter feed is actually the reason I reached out to you, because I do like how you... Sp- spotlight a lot of really cool stuff that has nothing to do with Stargate. Mm-hmm. You're I mean, I just like the fact that you'll bring up uh, a different dish that you're seeing or a different trend you might see in the news. And it's always positive, always upbeat, or at least if it's not super positive, mm-hmm. it's thought provoking. And with so much toxicity out there, that kind of thing is very, very appealing to me. Well, great. great. Swing on by, follow Baron Destructo at, uh, on Twitter. I'm going to make sure I get that in the show notes and any other social media you want to drop on there. I, You've got a website too. I do. I do. josephmolazzi.com where
1: uh, I've been blogging. I want to see now for over 13, 14 years, not missed a day. I've covered everything from my various productions to my dogs to, you know, I, you know, I, you, you got to keep it diverse just because if you're blogging every day, um, you run out of things to say,
0: yeah. Got to get yourself in the right headspace, and you know, it, blogging different topics brings in a different audience. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed a trend in the blogging over the past five years with social media becoming the new space to talk?
1: You know, I became active on social media right before I started on Stargate, just because I wanted to get you know, um test the waters and see what some of the fans were, were thinking about the show. So for me, it hasn't really been a sudden um, uh, development over the past five years, but kind of a slow development over, I want to say 20 years. Um, So certainly I see more people online. I see um, uh, a lot more interactions. There's a lot more ease of interactions. Um, And then, a lot of diversity of opinion, shall we say?
0: Sure. And that's kind of where I was leading with that is uh, I've heard bloggers say that it's now difficult to get people to actually sit and read a blog because they just want to read a single tweet and react. Has that been your experience? Um, I mean, a little, I, I find
1: that certainly my blog traffic seems to fall off when I'm not in production. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I I think that's a good point. In, in general, it's, it's the same way with uh, television viewing. People seem to like the smaller packages. They don't really want to invest uh, time in uh, kind of a long, longer, more elaborate uh, productions, which is, you know, kind of disappointing. but.
0: I would agree. And especially when you're talking about a, a subject, just a, a fictional, uh, fictional universe, for example, creativity, mm-hmm. it's not something that fits into 200 and some characters. Right. Usually you have to flesh out the ideas, bounce a couple ideas back and forth. And I, I, I like blogging and I wish that people would go back to actually like reading, reading some mm-hmm. book ideas and, and so forth. I know that's still there but it just seems like it gets lost in the traffic sometimes.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm really
0: interested to find out how many people actually read. I remember
1: hearing, uh, I don't know if this is even true, that 1% of uh, of Americans read books, which seems uh, unusually small. Mm-hmm. And this was many, many years ago. So I'm wondering what, what it's like now if the advent of, uh, of laptops and, and, and things that give you the ability to read on a screen have actually helped or, or, you know, have they actually hurt reading in general.
0: I didn't get the chance to vet the statistics, but I know that reading had been on a decline for a while, but as of 2018, there was a noticeable uptick in the sales of both print and digital books. And it was a a very... Big uptick. It was like on the age of like 30% or something like that over the previous year.
1: So, and why is that?
0: I don't know. Um, I, I didn't get a chance to vet the statistics. I don't trust statistics until I can see right. how they were compiled and who compiled them. Yeah. But as somebody who reads a lot mm-hmm. and somebody who values the written word, I find that encouraging. It gives yeah. me cause for hope. Yeah.
1: But I think you got to start them young. Uh, you know I would imagine you know a series like the Harry Potter series ended up encouraging many uh, youngsters to read and and you know hopefully that followed through and 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 you know they 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 continued to read uh, as they grew older but mm-hmm. you know I, I it's uh it is sometimes a little discouraging to to
0: you know to find out how how few people actually. Uh, read yeah it's it, the the old statistic used to be that 20 percent of people never pick up a book after high school mm. which is still better than the one percent that you quoted earlier <laughs> but it's still <laughs> um and and i there's so many topics out there mm-hmm. so many different styles of book and i yeah. mean in audiobooks add a whole new level to the conversation too it's like if you physically can't see or you don't have the time to sit there's still a book for you out there yeah yeah I don't know if I would have the patience
1: for for an audible or an audio book. I imagine I would have to listen to it at uh, double speed. You can do that, right?
0: Yes, you can. Yeah, yeah. And you can also slow it down if that is useful to you as well. And I've mm-hmm. done both, depending on the book. Right. Um, I, a good voice actor will be paced well enough that as long as you're paying attention, you'll get what the you'll get the material. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I also kind of wonder about the. the what I'm thinking of as a post Harry Potter effect where Mm -hmm. people got into reading, like you said, because of Harry Potter and they got to the end of the series and they're like, what now? Yeah. And they're used to reading and now they don't have any more Harry Potter, but they want something. Yeah.
1: I mean, any series that, that will encourage kids to read, uh, you know, is great. And, And there are a lot of them. I mean, there's a Harry Potter, there's the, uh, I mean, the series of unfortunate events, the Lemony Snicket series was also a great uh, kids book. And then, you know, the, I haven't read them, but the, um, the Hunger Games series as well. Yeah, a little more YA, but uh, still something that, that'll, uh, that'll draw um, uh, young readers. But from what I understand, actually, the YA uh,
0: book space is, is doing fairly well. For a while, YA was considered to be the hardest genre, but the most profitable genre to sell to, Mm -hmm, if -hmm. you could crack it. So a lot of people pushed to get their stuff there. Yeah, And so I think that a couple of years later, we're now seeing suddenly that space exploded. And we have books that were originally written for adults that they just said, we can tweak it here or there make it a YA, possibly Mm -hmm. make more money.
1: Mm -hmm. And and quite frankly, on the the TV side, there is certainly a push to acquire um, some, you know, white, those YA titles. Less, less a case of sort of original sh- series and more um, acquisition of IPs, meaning um, intellectual properties, books, comic books that w- would appeal to younger viewers.
0: I just released an episode today uh, with an author named James Rubin who said that we're at a point now where TV is the space for decent material. It's mm-hmm. just, it's, it's blowing out movies. Movies are, they are what they are. But TV, all the great writers are on TV right now. Is that kind of what you're seeing too? Yeah, I've seen that for a while now. And I think
1: um, the, the, the kind of the, the rise of the serialized storytelling shows like The Sopranos and Breaking Bad uh, Mad Men have kind of led that, um, and, and it's, it's, it's funny how, um, you know, when, as a young writer, uh, looking to break into the industry, your initial thought is you want to write movies. And yet the reality is that, um, the chances mm-hmm. of getting your, your, your feature film, uh, script produced are infinitesimal. Uh, and then even if you do end up getting it produced, uh, you'll probably be rewritten and, and kind of uh, uh, shunted off to the to the wings, because features are really a director's game, whereas uh, television is a writer's game. So you know, a writer can uh, become a showrunner, and I mean, as the, the title implies, run the show, call the shots with creative and from a production standpoint. Um, and you know, as a result, because you the, the the power really resides more in TV. That's where I think a lot of the talent has really pooled, and then as a result, you get uh, products like um, you know the uh, the Queen's Gambit and, and other productions. And as you know, as you pointed out, as movies continue to be what they are, the the bar continues to rise in terms of the storytelling at television, and that uh, ends up uh, attracting top directors who normally would never, you know, would would do film and would never think about doing television, suddenly start migrating to to television. It's the same thing with talent as well. Um, You know, Witherspoon doing a TV show, you know, who would have thought? uh, And yet, you know, she did because
0: I'm sure she responded to the material. Yeah, and it seems that there was also some more doors opened when the expectation that you'd have a 23 episode season suddenly took a backseat when some projects were like, we can just give you a really good 10 episodes mm-hmm. and that might be cheaper to make. You might get a better story out of it. The fans might grab it faster. I mean, so many different shows out there. It's, it's hard to find one story that fits all, but that's, it seems to be the way things went.
1: Yeah. I mean, networks are still very much a multi like 20, 24 episode. Uh, uh, commitment, whereas streamers went from, I think, 13 to now 10 is is really more the norm. And you know, the the nice thing about that is, I think, you know, if you know you're going in with a 10 chapter, if you will, series or first season, it really allows you to d- distill those ideas and, and just, you know, make all those you know each of those episodes all the more impactful uh on the other hand um you know landing on the streamer will often mean three and out if you're lucky uh, whereas if you're on the network who knows how long you can go on i mean SG1 was on for like 10 seasons we almost did an 11th season um yeah.
0: but uh, sadly it was not to be yeah and that that is a shame because i would like to go back to the stargate universe big time uh, I especially think that, that it's got that effect that you could make different Stargate teams that would, again, just like you made a, a separate team for Universe and Atlantis. Uh, there's, there's so many potentials to reiterate that concept in entirely new ways. Yeah, I think
1: it would be very easy to come up with a series. I think that, um, as you said, introduces a new team and introduces the Stargate world to new viewers, while at the same time, paying tribute to what has come before by treating uh, longtime fans to maybe guest appearances by some established characters. Uh, you, can, you can create a series that, that offers the best of both worlds. And frankly, I'm surprised that uh,
0: they haven't done it yet. Yeah. And I know that if it was being talked about, you couldn't say anything, mm-hmm. so I won't even bother to ask. I'm just going to say, I would like to see it happen. As would I, as would I. <laughs> I can't think of a better place to leave it, Mr. Belozzi. Is there a way I could put any more social media info out there for people to track you on? Do we get everything?
1: Uh, no. I mean, you can come visit my blog. Just do a search for Joseph Malozzi and it will take you there. I, I blog every day, but everything from television production to food. Uh, or you can find me on Twitter where I tweet every day. Again, you can uh, do a name search or you can come find me at, at Baron Destructo.
0: on twitter i would love to have you back on and talk about all the stuff that we missed here so uh please let's let's keep in touch and uh maybe get together in sometime soon i'd love to thanks so much for having me i would like to thank joseph for being my guest today and i would like to thank you for listening for the community building part of the show today And for anybody just joining us, a community-building tip is something we use to grow the show that, I promise, costs you nothing and takes less than five minutes of your time. If you got something out of this show and think that it would benefit another listener, somebody who's into your fandom, go ahead and post a link to this show on a forum that you might be on, whether that be a web forum or a Facebook group or a Discord server. Spreading the word over the internet is one of the most effective ways we can get this show into the hands of people that would really like it. Don't forget you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.